0: And thanks for listening.
1: Do Americans have a constitutional right to a clean environment? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate change is affecting every aspect of our lives, our environment, our health, our economy, our future. And now it's even creeping into our courtrooms. Is our legal system equipped to handle the changing climate?
2: I am anticipating there are going to be professional malpractice lawsuits against architects and engineers who design buildings and other structures that don't withstand the extreme weather events that are now easily foreseeable.
1: Climate change has brought on a wave of new reasons to go to court. In many states, legislators backed by oil interests have introduced bills designed to have a chilling effect on protests against new fossil fuel pipelines and other infrastructure. And survivors of disasters like Hurricane Katrina are finding that they may not have the rights they thought they did.
3: Even if everybody knew that grandma wanted her niece or her granddaughter to inherit her home, Mm. if that's not written down... Uh, in a will, that's not what's going to happen by operation of law.
1: On today's program, we'll talk about climate-related lawsuits currently making their way through the legal system. I'll be joined by some of the people working to ensure that climate issues, and those most affected by them, have their day in court. In one case dating back to 2015, 21 youth plaintiffs filed a suit against the U.S. government's executive branch, including then-President Barack Obama and now Donald Trump. The case, known as Juliana versus the United States, claims that the government has violated young people's constitutional rights to life and liberty by encouraging activities that lead to climate change. Is there any legal basis for a constitutional right to a safe climate? Michael Gerard, who directs the Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University, has been following the case.
2: Most environmental law professors were quite surprised that the district court found that there might be a constitutional right to a clean environment. The judge found it in the due process
1: clause of the Fifth Amendment, uh, but it's a novel theory and my understanding one of the other theories they're trying to do is there's the, the the public trust doctrine which is long standing for water back to the code of justinian in roman times that's well established for water as a as a public right public trust they're trying to basically transfer that from water to air saying we have a right to a safe climate is that a legal stretch Very few courts have found that the public trust doctrine
2: applies to the atmosphere and few courts have found that the public trust doctrine uh, gives government an affirmative duty to do something. Usually it's a protective measure. You can't build in the waterway, that kind of thing. It's much harder to use it to compel the government to act.
1: Another area where climate is in the courts is uh, voters in Toledo, Ohio, are going to uh, have voted to put a measure on the ballot to establish whether Lake Erie has uh, legal rights. And this is not the first time there's other you – know, Ecuador established the rights of nature in its constitution. There's something you – know, the international efforts to try to give nature a voice, establish the rights of nature in law. What do you think about that?
2: that too is a novel effort in the United States uh, conventionally if you want to suit a challenge water pollution you get a fisherman or someone who's directly uh, a human being who's directly hurt or if it's air air you find someone who has asthma but in a couple of other countries they have established that natural features themselves have have rights. The most recent efforts in the U.S. have been on behalf of chimpanzees. There have been some suits trying to get a
1: habeas corpus for a chimpanzee. So at your Center for uh, climate change law at Columbia University, you have a silencing science tracker. I looked at the list. It's uh, 33 pages long, includes things such as uh, requiring, quote, balanced teaching materials in Florida, budget cuts at NIH, NOAA, NASA, uh, FEMA science panel uh, suspended. What are some of the really uh, striking cases where science has been silent in the last couple of years?
2: Well, since Trump took office, he has, uh, and, and the people he has appointed have really been assaulting science. Uh, they've been appointing people not, who are not only non-scientists, but hostile to science, to important positions at EPA and other federal regulatory agencies. They have been completely disregarding the the viewpoints and the findings and the data of actual scientists. And I've been working very, very hard to, uh, to push back against truth. And so a few years ago, even before the administration, we helped incubate a group called the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund, mm-hmm. whose purpose is to provide pro bono legal help to scientists who are being uh, uh, attacked by uh, by deniers and so forth and that effort uh, the effort to go after climate scientists has escalated since Trump took office
1: and that legal uh, that that climate science legal defense fund is really interesting because I've talked to some of the people that's on that webpage including Ben Santer uh, who works at a, at a government laboratory and they are often uh, harassed by freedom of information requests uh, that uh, require a lot of their time to comply with and they are federal employees and they have legal representation through their lab. And the, But the interests of the national lab don't always align with the personal interests of the scientists. So tell us a little bit about how a scientist can be facing harassment for their, that consumes their time and potentially their own personal money.
2: Right. If a scientist is employed by a government agency such as a national lab or a public university – Uh, then uh, people who want to give them a hard time can file a request under the federal or state public records law, the freedom of Information law. And it could require a great deal of time for them to go through their emails. It's not just their articles they want. They want all their personal emails. So that's very burdensome. And uh, many of the efforts to do that against scientists have been struck down in court through the efforts of the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund and others. A few of them have been upheld that it's, it's quite burdensome and it's taking the scientists away from their actual work.
1: Um, there's also the climate deregulation tracker, lots of things on there, relaxing methane waste prevention, relaxing emission controls on new coal plants. I don't think there's many new coal plants being built, but they're uh, repealing the light bulb efficiency regulation from the Department of Energy. Uh, again, a long list of all the deregulation that's happening across the federal government right now. What are some of their standout items there?
2: Well, the the Trump administration is systematically trying to repeal all of the things that the Obama administration was doing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and uh, comply with the Paris goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the most important ones are the um, attempted to roll back in motor vehicle emission standards and the attempted... Uh, withdrawal from California of its ability to have stronger standards, and the regulations on existing coal-fired
1: power plants. Those are the two that have the greatest quantitative impact. And the one with California is basically trying to repeal, really going for the jugular uh, because no administration has ever challenged California's ability to have an exemption from the Clean Air Act to have stricter standards. The Trump administration is going after that. In fact, I've interviewed Andrew Wheeler about that. It's really a state's, partly a a state versus federal, like a lot of things in American history and law, the the rights of the federal government, state's government. So how do you see this playing out in climate with uh, states trying to regulate certain things, and the federal government's coming in with preemption or saying, yes, you can, no, you can't.
2: Yeah, I mean, the current administration says it's in favor of states' rights, except – but they're only really in favor of state rights when that helps the polluters. But when it goes in the other direction, they say, wait a minute, when the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, California was grandfathered from federal preemption Mm -hmm. because – they had taken such measures against Los Angeles smog, and so ever since then, there's the tradition that California has been able to adopt its own stricter standards, and and other states can sign under the California and standards. And eighteen other states do. That's right, um, and and so it's it's almost half of the uh, motor vehicle market. So it makes an enormous difference. And uh, it, the auto companies don't like what the Trump administration is doing either, because they need the certainty about what kind of cars to build. It's more uh, some of the oil companies that would lose business if you had more fuel-efficient cars. And consumers who would who save a lot of money by more fuel-efficient cars have to spend less money at the gas tank.
1: Um, you've also uh, written about legal pathways for decarbonizing because a, a lot of what we've seen has happened. Well, States will pass renewable portfolio standards and then um, Coke funded groups or others will come in and try to roll those back that 's happened in arizona there 's been back and forth back and forth that seem to be what you 're doing is trying to point out some legally defensible ways for cities and counties um, to decarbonize in ways that, uh, that they 're on solid legal ground. What are those pathways
2: so we 've identified more than a thousand specific measures that can be done at the federal or the state. Or the local levels. There are three pillars. The first is energy efficiency. The second is uh, decarbonizing the electricity supply so that it's renewables, maybe nuclear, but not fossil. And the third is moving to electricity away from from gasoline and liquid fuels and and gaseous fuels. So there are, uh, they say, about a thousand of these pathways, and we are now going out to try to implement them by recruiting. Pro bono lawyers around the country to do the drafting of the model ordinances and the statutes and regulations that would implement this. We've also started just now something called the Renewable Energy Legal Defense Initiative, hmm. uh, which is providing pro bono legal help to community groups
1: that want wind and solar and so forth in their communities that are being opposed. Interesting because, uh, again, you know, uh, Koch-funded groups, American Legislative Exchange Council, others tend to come in and uh, try to repeal these these sorts of things. So do you encounter ALEC? Is ALEC still out there and as strong as it ever was? Because there was a period there where... Some Silicon Valley companies walked away from ALEC, because of its partly because of its climate stance
2: uh, yes they 're still at it, and we are trying to create almost a counter Alec by coming out with the uh, with proposed statutes and regulations and ordinances that go in exactly the opposite direction, so where there are friendly lawmakers who want to introduce. Um, climate positive actions. They'll have things that they that we can
1: give them to work on, and some resources behind it. Because Alex seems to have put renewables on on the defense a lot of the time. That's right. We want to go in the other direction. It's all pro bono, but uh, we think it's important work. Um, there seems to be a lot of. Uncertainty in the law in the future. I I, I came from Miami recently, and just I'm boggled. They're about to build the tallest building in Miami, right in the waterfront, in the middle of a harbor. And I have to think about future legal liability. There's a lot of building that's being done where you would think a rational person would not put new buildings, knowing what we what scientists know about sea level rise. I have to think about the legal skirmishes in the future about who knew what, when, who's liable. Is it the developer? Is it the insurance company? Is it the mortgage lender? Is it the buyer? It just seems like, and also as rising tides, there's a question of, you know, what is public domain? What is private property? What is public domain? Can you look into that crystal ball a little bit and see future skirmishes about liability? You know, bad things are going to happen. Who knew what, when, and who's responsible?
2: It hasn't happened yet, but I am anticipating there are going to be professional malpractice lawsuits against architects and engineers who design buildings and other structures that don't withstand the extreme weather events that are now easily foreseeable. Um, Very often in commercial development projects, somebody builds it and and they sell it and and are gone. And it may be years later that the injury happens and the statute of limitations or the statute of proposed is passed and it's too late to sue. Um, But I I think we're also going to see landlord-tenant disputes. Uh, We're seeing already a huge number of insurance disputes, Uh, there are a couple of lawsuits pending against oil companies, not because of the greenhouse gas emissions, but because their oil tank farms seem to be vulnerable to extreme weather events that they haven't prepared for. And that could be a violation of the Clean Water Act and the Oil Pollution Act because of the great risk that a big storm will cause the tanks to burst and cause oil spills.
1: So there's a lot of legal skirmishes to come. And it seems like there's, the in our system, kind of the the deep pockets often win, have to have the best lawyers. And, you know, who's going to be there representing the little person who maybe, you know, bought a condo, bought some property? We're already seeing deflation, slow deflation in coastal property prices. Where's the little guy going to get or little person going to get representation in something like that?
2: Yeah. A lot of, that is a real problem. Uh, and the cases are different enough that it may not work for our, for a class action. So there are a lot of people who are going to lose a lot of money. Their, their biggest investment is their home. And if their home is
1: underwater, literally as well as figuratively, they're really in bad shape. Climate disrupts so many things. We've talked a little bit about property, liability, responsibility. Other areas where I think new, new emerging areas of, of law will, be, will come around because climate is changing power, changing uh, responsibility, changing the way financial transactions happen? We're going to see a lot of disruption of supply chains. Uh, all across the world.
2: And that's going to lead to litigation where a a factory has to shut down production because I don't have the parts uh, Uh that were. uh, the factory was flooded out. Uh, That happened some years ago. It turned out most of the uh, hard drives are manufactured in Thailand and the factories were all flooded out and caused major problems. uh, Agriculture is one area that is especially vulnerable. And there are many crops that are really in danger. Lots of uh, fancy food processing operations rely on crops that are grown halfway around the world. And if they don't have them, that's a big problem. It's going to be enormously disruptive. You're
1: listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change in the courts. That was Michael Girard, professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School. Coming up, lives up ended in the aftermath of disaster.
4: They were supposed to let you know that it floods really bad over here, so it's an option if you want to move here or not. And if they would have told me that, I would have never moved here. I would have never brought me and my family over here.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about dealing with the legal challenges of climate change. We've all seen the tragic footage of Hurricanes Katrina and Harvey and other disasters amplified by climate change. But what happens when the floodwaters recede? Residents of those communities, often stranded in temporary housing, find themselves faced with mountains of legal and insurance-related issues. One of the people who's helping them get back on their feet is Laura Tuggle, Executive Director of Southeast Louisiana Legal Services. The increase in weather-driven disasters over the past few years has given rise to a new branch of the law, which Tuggle is all too familiar with.
3: So disaster law is sort of a broad term that we use to apply to legal issues that directly come about as a result of disaster, or it could be a lot of the types of legal work that we do on a day-to-day basis at a civil legal aid office but that get compounded by the impact of a disaster. So an example of the first type that's really only comes into play as a result of disaster could be someone that applies for disaster-related benefits from, say, from FEMA um, and then is denied for those benefits or encounters some kind of eligibility issue for those benefits. Sort of on the flip side, an issue that we encounter every day being in in Louisiana, um, we have a huge issue with people not filing legal process to formally transfer titles to property that they may have inherited from a family member so that's something as you can imagine that would come about any time but in the context of a disaster you have to be able to prove that you own your home in order to qualify f- often for insurance proceeds for disaster benefits to get a loan to repair your home after a disaster um, to qualify for long-term kinds of disaster recovery assistance. And so in in the wake of disaster, we see that particular issue really rise to the surface as a very uh, frequent need that people have for assistance after a disaster strikes.
1: And... Uh women tend to live longer than men. Uh, that's I think, statistically true. Is it often widows that are some of the most vulnerable people to um, who don't have title to a home after a, a um, disaster?
3: I think you must have read my uh, lessons learned from disaster report. So we, <laughs> we were last impacted by a, a major disaster in 2016 when there were uh, floods as a result of a lot of rain in a very short period of time. And we had like 154,000 claims for FEMA assistance from that particular event. And we started a project in collaboration with both law schools in Baton Rouge and some pro bono attorneys and some other community partners called Flood Proof. And it was really all about Trying to clear title through doing what we call in Louisiana succession work, but which the rest of the world called probate. Um, and the most common statistic that we had, sort of the profile of our typical client, was a widow who, an African American widow who was probably had income of less than about $1,200 a month.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: so that was sort of our typical profile of who our client was, 46% of our clients in that particular project were uh, African-American seniors, and most of them were widows. Our normal caseload uh, in a non-disaster context is about 19%. So we had a huge jump after the flood of people seeking that service.
1: So what's your tip for people? There's increasing hurricanes uh, intensity around the country. These storms are getting... Uh, more ferocious due to climate change. What should people do legally to prepare for a climate-driven event?
3: Well, one thing that, that we learned ourselves as a lesson after Hurricane Katrina back in August of 2005, we really learned as an organization that it was critical for us to continue doing not only this kind of succession work, but also to help people do wills. Uh, Because when you do a will, you can designate what you want to happen with your property instead of it just going by what the law sets out. So even if everybody knew that grandma wanted her niece or her granddaughter to inherit her home because maybe she moved in and took care of her after she got ill, Mm. if that's not written down uh, in a will, That's not what's going to happen by operation of law. So the advice in a very long-winded way, as attorneys are are wont to to do, is that we would tell people, don't wait till disaster is here. Go ahead and try to take action now to get your affairs in order. And that's a, a hard message for people to deal with. Now, you know, certainly air property issues aren't the only thing, but we are really seeing that as a huge part of our disaster resilience work.
1: There's also an insurance angle here. I've read that you know, one storm can be categorized as multiple events requiring separate deductibles. What should people do to look at their insurance policies now that storms are becoming more fierce and, and damaging?
3: Well, um, one thing that folks really need to do is to try to have documents in order. So that would be another tip not just looking at those documents and realizing, you know, what's my wind deductible, or maybe I have a flood deductible, or maybe there's some things that are even exempt from coverage. Um, It's really figuring out where are these policies and knowing that you have these documents uh, uploaded somewhere. So whether you're going to keep things on the cloud, whether you're going to Pack certain documents like your deeds to your home, your insurance policies, your will if you have one. Um, You want to be able to have that information where you can access it easily Um, because it, it, you know, it's really, if it's a catastrophic event, you're probably going to lose a lot of your documentation.
1: You said you don't do a lot of insurance work, but so much of this does come down to insurance. The chief executive of Lloyd's of London, Inga Beale, told the Times of London a while back that severe storms actually benefit insurance companies, she quote, almost in a perverse way, unquote, because they allow insurers to raise premiums. Are you seeing clients of yours face increasing premiums after disasters?
3: Oh, sure. oh definitely. Um, not just clients, but I think if you were to ask any of our staff <laughs> and myself, uh we are definitely seeing that reflected in our in our premiums. All of the clients we serve are are at or below the poverty level or maybe just slightly above it with some of our special grants, and it has become increasingly more difficult for families that we serve to be able to afford to maintain insurance that on their homes. Uh, We have seen a big jump, not so much in flood policies. Those have been fairly minor. Those are backed up usually by FEMA. But homeowners insurance, we have definitely seen a pretty marked increase since Hurricane Katrina.
1: And there's also uh, insurance companies also ditch unprofitable neighborhoods and policyholders, leaving taxpayers to often pick up the slack, right? Some areas are uninsurable. It's often taxpayers and the government that come in there, which raises some real questions in a place like New Orleans, where it's below sea level and been bailed out a bunch of times.
3: For the city to be able to continue to thrive, you know, you have to have a way to insure properties. I mean, businesses aren't going to come here. uh, Homeowners aren't going to stay here. um, So we don't want people to vote with their feet and get out of the city. Uh, So that is definitely happening where that's sort of getting passed around within whatever the particular insurance market is. That has definitely been one of the impacts.
1: The Army Corps of Engineers spent $14 billion on a network of levees and flood walls to protect greater New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. But Scientific American reported recently that the Army Corps has determined that the levees will no longer provide sufficient protection in as little as four years because of rising seas and shrinking levees. Has that been noted there in in New Orleans, that, that all that money may not last very long, that investment in protecting the city from Hurricanes that we know will come.
3: Well, I think that that's a pretty sobering statistic when you when you put it out there like that. But I I think that there's a lot of folks that don't realize that. Um, I think that there's always there's going to be a duty to protect the city. There's going to be a duty for uh, different levy districts and the Army Corps of Engineers to do whatever they can to to help protect communities. Of course, we have to figure out what is our part in that in that as well, um, mm-hmm. what different things can be happening, what different kind of policies and procedures. But do I think people just sort of your, your standard uh, New Orleanian uh, thinks that they're not going to be protected in four years? I don't think that they think that. So I guess it remains to be seen. Time will tell <laughs> what's going to really happen with that.
1: When would it be time to think about managed retreat? Because $14 billion for some levies, that's a lot of money. And New Orleans is just one city. There's, I could say the same of Miami and lots of coastal cities. At what point do we have to think about hmm managed retreat?
3: I think we probably should have thought about it about uh, 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I would say it's past time that we think about it. Um, you know, what the plans are for that. I know that. Uh, in Louisiana, there are at least probably half a different half a dozen different organizations that I can think of that are working on different kind of coastal recovery. Some of them being nonprofits, some of them being state government, some of them being local government. Uh, so I know that there's a lot of effort going on around this, but you know, when is the point that that those super tough decisions maybe get made about where folks can live and do we have to consider resettling certain folks? That's a really tough thing to do. But those those types of conversations are beginning to happen in Louisiana.
1: Do you think about what would cause you to leave?
3: Well, not until you just asked me that question. <laughs> uh, I don't plan to leave. I think I would go down with the ship. Uh, it's a really special place. You know, I guess if uh, I guess if the if the water was at your doorstep, you might you might have to do something a little bit different. Um, I I don't I would never want to leave unless I absolutely had to.
1: That's Laura Tuggle, executive director of Southeast Louisiana Legal Services, and a diehard New Orleanian. Amid the massive storms that have pummeled Houston in recent years, the tax day flood of 2016 often gets overlooked.
0: Nearly 10,000 buildings were damaged. Houston Fire Marshal had to label them structurally
1: unsound. Arbor Court Apartments was underwater.
3: There is no help for us. People are still fighting to recover.
1: The annual deadline triggers memories of heartache and loss. In a few days starting on April 15th, the region received a whopping 8 inches of rain or 240 billion gallons of water. Houston is getting warmer and wetter. Tanisha Reed Coachman is a home health care worker and single mother. At the time of the tax day flood, she was living in publicly subsidized housing at the Arbor Court Apartments near a flood-prone bayou. She survived the flood by swimming to safety with her two children, who were 9 and 15 years old at the time.
4: At first, uh, me and the neighbors, we we were living we lived upstairs, so we kind of like wasn't too concerned with evacuating at the moment until um, so the water started to come upstairs and we started to see water coming into our apartment. So that's when everybody started to get frantic and made the decision that we need to get out and get out immediately. Um, we had to save ourselves, basically, um, to get out of there. We had to use refrigerators. I mean, it was that much water to where you can literally turn the refrigerator and make it into a boat. Uh, Laundry baskets, trash cans, anything you could possibly think of that we could put children and elderly in to get us to the bridge, we had to do it by ourselves. No one came in and helped us. I had to swim out with my son and my daughter uh, on each hip and swim out to the gate till I was able to get to the bridge. People with low, um, limited mobility, they were pretty much... um, helpless unless we were there to save them. No one came in with boats. No one came in and tried to help us. It, it was us, this small com- community that helped one another. People that was in wheelchairs, we literally had to carry them on our backs. We had to come in apartments multiple times to help you know, everyone get out. And it's the crazy thing about it. As we were getting to the bridge, we seen them come in and they literally like drove right past us. They didn't help us at all. We did it all by ourselves. I feel that you know a a lot of times we get objected because of our living situation, or, you know, our backgrounds, things like that. And I mean, if it's a situation like that, and you see that people's drowning, it's kids out here, you know, you would help more, you would do more. But uh, that wasn't the case, and so we were all really disappointed and upset at that to see boats coming in here and just pass us by and not, you know, help us out. It was just very disappointing. We were able to move back in Court maybe like a month after the fact. The condition, it was uh, moldy. um, It smelled extremely bad. Uh, The floors uh, were starting to cave in all the way from the bathtub, restroom, all the way to the living room, also in a master bedroom. So from the water just sitting there, uh, yeah, and the smell, it's just, it was really, really bad. (laughs) To be honest with you, the apartments never really got fixed. It was just, you know, um, they were going in and making things presentable, let me say that. It's just, you know, they slap some paint on some stuff and, you know, put some things together and make it look nice, and and that's just what it is. It, It really never really got fixed. My son and my daughter, they have asthma. My daughter haven't had a reaction with her asthma, i say over two and a half years prior to the situation happening. Since now, I'm constantly taking them back and forth to the doctor because of flare-ups of bronchitis and their asthma, you know, because of the mold. And we can't see it, but sometimes we can smell it coming through the vents. We will go to the office and talk to the people in the office to see what was going on. they always was you know be rude they never want to assist you and help you with anything it's always some type of an aggression so it's really not too much that we were able to do even with the owners of the apartments when they came over and we discussed with them and told them issues that we were having you know it's just pretty much they turned the other cheek and never really listened to what we had to say. it kind of, it opened up my eyes. I'm not going to say it kind of did. It did open up my eyes to know that any place that I move to, to make sure that I have some type of insurance to cover things, because the <laughs> things that I lost, you know, I can't get that back. And then trying to, you know, come out of pocket and do things like that is kind of hard being a single mother. So that taught me to make sure that I have insurance, make sure that everything's covered. All my T's is crossed and all my, my eyes are dotted. And the thing is too, is that, you know, When I moved over here, if I would have known that it was a flood zone, I would have never came. They didn't give me that option, and they were supposed to let you know that it floods really bad over here, so it's an option if you want to move here or not. And if they would have told me that, I would have never moved here. I would have never brought me and my family over here.
1: Tanisha Reed Coachman and her children have since moved out of the Arbor Court to another part of Houston. She says she checked to make sure her new neighborhood is less prone to flooding. You're listening to a conversation about climate and the law. Coming up, nationwide fallout from an Oklahoma bill designed to target climate activists.
0: So it took something where there were previously kind of misdemeanor, minor charges, and suddenly they became really serious charges. That's up
1: next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about taking climate change to court. Reporter Nicholas Kuznets has written on climate and the environment for ProPublica, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. He's now with Inside Climate News. Kuznets covered the 2016 Standing Rock protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. That action fired up a movement that's still active today.
0: So I think that uh, Standing Rock was obviously a, a huge deal. I mean, it made um, a pipeline national news, which is not something that happens all the time. But it also, it was really bad both for the state uh, and for the company behind the pipeline. So for the company, suddenly they had this terrible PR And the company's name became synonymous with like an evil energy company. It also cost them a lot of money. It was delaying the project. Uh, They were having to have all this extra security. And then a lot of the same thing was happening to the state of North Dakota in this case uh, and some of the local um, law enforcement agencies. So they had huge costs to deal with this and terrible PR as
1: well. I, I saw that one uh, official said it was cost the state $40 million, the security cost for Dakota Access Pipeline. So uh, there's a legislator that kind of steps in, Scott Biggs. Tell us about him. So this
0: is in Oklahoma. That's right. So uh, soon after those protests die down, Trump is now in office. Just a little bit south, um, there's another pipeline planned to cross Oklahoma. And a group of Local indigenous uh, activists and environmental activists were all coming together and planning to fight this pipeline as it crossed through indigenous lands. And so they held a press conference at the state capitol announcing this, and they basically invoked Standing Rock, saying, you know, we're going to bring our own Standing Rock here in Oklahoma. Then uh, just one week later, you have a state lawmaker in Oklahoma introduce a bill that would impose really steep penalties and fines for people for trespassing on or interfering with pipelines or other uh, so-called critical infrastructures facilities. So these are uh, oil and gas pipelines, but also transmission, electric transmission, water
1: facilities. Does it apply to wind and solar facilities? i don't
0: I don't think it does, and in fact, I mean one thing I should say is what what the bill really did, and one thing why it was important was that some of this definition already existed, so this expanded it to include pipelines which which weren't included there in oklahoma um but biggs the the sponsor. He was out in the open about um, Standing Rock being kind of the inspiration for introducing this bill. You know, he didn't want this and and the energy industry in Oklahoma didn't want another Standing Rock. So what they did was they took uh, the bill would take something like, say, trespassing on a pipeline construction site. You know, maybe if a protester is on the edges of a of a site and and even intentionally trespassing you know before you have a minor misdemeanor charge suddenly that protester could be facing a felony uh jail time huge fines and and what's more is that the bill took uh something out of the page of some lawsuits that had actually already been filed um by the company behind the Dakota access pipeline. It, it gave the state a way to go after people who are funding uh, activists. So the bill included a clause that um, would allow prosecutors to go after huge fines up to a million dollars, depending on the charges of any organization that was funding someone who violated the law.
1: Found to be a conspirator, I think, was what you wrote about. And this is the bill uh, introduced by Republican state representative Scott Biggs. So that takes it beyond someone who's participating in a protest to people who are not present, but supportive through what their funding or other actions?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth... So just stepping back from the kind of nitty gritty details, basically what, what the bill did is it took actions that are are somewhat, become somewhat common uh, in environmental activism movement of sort of blocking a gate, or in the case of Standing Rock, a protest maybe that's on, you know, bleeds onto private land. So it took something um, where there were previously kind of misdemeanor minor charges, and suddenly they became really serious charges. But then there was, as you said, another clause to the bill, which... um, opened up any group that had been planning with or funding these protesters to have to face huge fines. So in in Oklahoma, what this meant is, you know, as I said, the the groups had formed a coalition. So this was a lot of the indigenous and environmental groups in the state, the Sierra Club, uh, which, for example, never engages in civil disobedience. Um, You know, they had been working with the indigenous activists. So you had people in the local Sierra Club wondering, well, wait a minute, Uh, do we need to be careful about who we talk to now? Because if, if they go ahead and, you know, trespass or violate this law in the future, are they going to come back to us and slap huge fines on us? So the bill moved pretty quickly. Um, it was introduced in January and it was law by May, um, and so I spoke with some of the activists in the state, and they felt really intimidated by it. Um, there's this woman, Ashley McCray, um, who is uh, an indigenous activist, and she was one of the main organizers of this. And suddenly she was wondering, um, you know... What can I post on Facebook? I mean, if I uh, endorse some kind of protest that I'm not even part of, and that ends up, again, people, you know, trespass onto a pipeline property, can I be targeted by this? Uh, Another activist I spoke with in the state said that they had a lot of trouble drawing people out to these uh, protest camps that they did end up setting up. But the camps really didn't draw, you know, it was nothing like Standing Rock, of course. Um, And they said that, at least in part, that was because people were intimidated.
1: And then also in the spring of 2017, the Department of Homeland Security filed briefings. Uh, How did they come into play here?
0: Sure. So in this case, um, there was a sort of national security briefing by the Department of Homeland Security, and it identified uh, extreme environmentalists as the top domestic terror threat to the pipeline. So- What I think this shows is that um, these laws were not happening in isolation. They were part of a a broader move um, by law enforcement, some in government and the energy industry, you know, on its own outside of government to push back against the kind of protests, not just Standing Rock, but the protests that had been um, drawing increasing attention and success to some degree of activists, you know, trying to block coal trains, for example, or um, blocking construction of pipeline facilities. Um, So you've seen more and more of these, the protests against Keystone XL being another prominent example, um, where environmentalists have gone and um, intentionally broken these kind of minor laws like trespassing to draw attention to what they see as a bigger wrong. Um, So that's been happening more and more over the past five, six, seven years, and you've seen the energy industry and then allies and government pushing back with with this type of activity, um, treating activists like terrorists, um, stepping up surveillance of act- activists. You've seen a lot of that um, in Texas with the Keystone XL pipeline protests. There was a lot of it around Standing Rock, of course. There was a lot of good reporting on that. Um, so it's part of this kind of broader uh, spectrum of activity.
1: But to look at it from the perspective of state authorities, the, you know, there is – these protests are disruptive, expensive, and in some cases, is there vandalism against property? So, isn't it natural to try to, – for uh, companies to pro- try to protect their assets and for authorities and police to try to maintain, I guess, civility? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, and and of course, that's all true. And um, I think what uh, critics of the laws would point out is that – Uh, There have been prosecutions in North Dakota, for example. Um, There have been fines. And there are laws in place already uh, for when there are riots, for when people trespass, and certainly for when people
1: vandalize. So the bill gets uh, passed in Oklahoma. And then how does it go from Pennsylvania, Oklahoma? And then when does ALEC get involved? Tell us about that.
0: One thing that I definitely noticed when I was reporting is because none of the sponsors of the bills would talk to me. I tried repeatedly uh, with Biggs and, and and many others, all of them, in fact, and none of them would talk to me. So I couldn't really get their story of how they were learning about this, what was going on. Um, but one year after Biggs's bill in Oklahoma was introduced, ALEC, which is uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, a conservative and industry-funded group that works on state legislation, um, they adopted basically his bill as a model bill. So something to share with lawmakers in other States for them to introduce. Um, so that was January of 2018 when Alec adopted the model legislation and then it just started to spread around the country. Um, you had uh, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Ohio, several other states introduce bills that were very similar, if not identical, um, in, in language. And um, that year, in 2018, Louisiana also adopted a version of the bill. Um, there was another bill passed in Iowa that had somewhat different language, but um, had a lot of the same components. So the first arrests came almost immediately after Louisiana's bill went into effect, which was August of last year. There was uh, a big battle in Louisiana over a pipeline uh, that was slated to cross that state and and connect with a big petrochemical facility. The company behind that pipeline, uh, coincidentally, was the same one behind the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline up in North Dakota. So activists had been fighting that, and there was a lot of really... um, bitter fights, both kind of on the ground and in the courts. But once this bill went into effect, protesters were arrested almost immediately. And the first arrests came uh, in a waterway where protesters were in canoes and kayaks on what they considered to be uh, public property. But they were pulled off the water and literally pulled out of their canoes by um, state law enforcement officers who were actually off duty and working for a security contractor hired by the pipeline company.
1: That's interesting. So I mean it's it's fairly common for off duty police officers to, you know, work uh gigs, but they're yeah, wearing their uniforms it creates the impression that yeah, that could be kind of blurry, right?
0: Yeah, I think Louisiana really highlighted a lot of what um critics saw as just total undue influence of the industry here and a blurring of lines. So with the pipeline bill in the legislature, for example, at the main hearing of the bill, you had the sponsor sitting right next to a chief lobbyist for the state's oil and gas industry association. And when this was a a hearing where the uh, sponsor of the bill was answering questions from state senators, but when the senators asked kind of details of the bill, almost without fail, it was the lobbyist answering the questions. So there was no question about the role of the industry in getting this bill together. Then you also have uh, local and state law enforcement agencies who are conducting surveillance, essentially, on activists. Now, in their defense, they say, look, this is just a safety matter. We're doing nothing that we wouldn't do for a big event like a Super Bowl, for example. But there is also information sharing going on between the law enforcement agencies and the pipeline companies that isn't happening in the other direction, of course. And then finally, once it comes to the arrests, again, it's this blurring of lines where there are law enforcement officers using their um, official duties to conduct arrests, but they're actually getting paid by a security company for the pipeline company.
1: So have these laws been challenged by anyone? We have these ALEC-funded American Legislative Exchange Council-supported, modeled laws spreading across states. Um, Who's on the other side, organized opposition, if any? Sure. So
0: um, certainly environmental groups really across the board have... Um, been outraged at the bills, but they've been joined by civil liberties groups and chief among them, the ACLU. Uh, So local ACLU chapters have been uh, at the front of fighting back against a number of these bills. In Louisiana, a number of advocates and some uh, advocacy organizations have actually filed suit. They brought a constitutional challenge. Uh, That hasn't been heard yet. But in Texas, uh, there, there's sure to be a challenge along the way, whether that's as part of the case brought against these activists or, again, as kind of a separate suit.
1: And even where these laws have not yet been signed into law, do they still have effect, some kind of chilling effect or deterrent effect?
0: It, it's, of course, really difficult to know what would be happening if a law hadn't been passed, right? <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. so the best, you know, I've spoken with a lot of advocates, uh, both kind of on the national level and then local level, you know, like some of the indigenous activist groups in Oklahoma, for example. And I've heard both directly from people saying, yeah, you know, it's it's intimidating. And I've kind of thought twice about uh, whether to do this, like the woman in Oklahoma who, who was starting to question her Facebook posts. Um, but then there's kind of just the big question of like well who is it keeping from even deciding to do this at all you know to get to get involved in in advocacy at all with this kind of a threat i mean people just feel intimidated i mean they feel like there's sort of a culture where if you speak out particularly in a place like oklahoma or louisiana where the energy industry is is such a big piece of the economy if you speak out against the energy industry uh, you know, you're kind of speaking out against us and, and suddenly it's, it's kind of ostracizing you out of whatever your local society may be.
1: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about battles between energy companies and climate campaigners in state courts and legislatures. That was Nicholas Kuznets, reporter for Inside Climate News. My other guests today were Michael Girard, the Andrew Sabin Professor of Professional Practice at Columbia University, and Laura Tuggle, Executive Director of Southeast Louisiana Legal Services. We also heard from Tunisia Reed Coachman, a survivor of the 2016 Tax Day flood in Houston. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.